Hello, my name is Kevin Igo from PFP. I'm pleased to be joined today by Mark Taylor from Buzzercots. And Mark, you've just finished delivering your webinar on HMRC and latest compliance tactics, which was registered by um, many hundreds of, of individuals. Um, briefly, can you tell us what were the main points you wanted people to take away from your webinar? Uh, I would say there were three core points. Uh, firstly, that people recognise the HMRC's end game and what I mean from that is that, that ultimately because there's three stages of an inquiry which is the opening, working and closing that they don't get ambushed at the closing stage when HMRC then sort of comes at them in terms of uh, extending time limits, the penalty powers and, and just being surprised by HMRC's uh, end approach. Uh, the second point was was how to uh, best present facts to maximise clients' behaviour to minimise uh, assessment exposure and penalty uh, powers. Uh, and thirdly, uh, if there was uh, to be a disclosure needed in any case, uh, the early disclosure was made where necessary and to ensure that one, uh, enhanced that disclosure and shouted about doing so to uh, maximise the penalty mitigation uh, to minimise the, the eventual penalty charged. It, so a number of our listeners were clearly concerned with the perceived increasing aggressive, aggressive attitude by HMRC. So my question there for you, or questions, is do you think that is the case? If so, why do you think it is? Uh, I think it is the case. Um, I think the, the there's a, there's a number of things. I think I think firstly uh, the 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 lack of um, I think the quality of some of the individuals that are doing compliance work. Uh, I think that that stems from the fact that you now you currently have people doing compliance work that actually in HMRC that don't actually want to do it, uh, but that's the role that they've been pushed. Uh, into or steered into, whereas previously perhaps they were doing administrative roles. Um, the lack of, dare I say, understanding and uh, appreciation of uh, the the assessment powers, the inquiry process, the penalty powers, uh, also a lack of understanding with regard to commerciality and businesses, um, and uh, and I, and also there is a big. Um, you know, HMRC is is uh, under pressure to uh, collect or be seen to increase yield and collections, and ultimately this is filtered down uh, to the staff. I mean, you know, we we do get uh, uh, we have had uh, HMRC officers that have openly admitted to us that, that they're under pressure. It's not them themselves; it's their boss or their their line manager that's pursuing a particular. A, a stance. So would you agree with one of the comments made during the webinar that it's really important that advisors actually do understand the rights of the, their clients, the taxpayers, as well as the limits to the rights of HMRC? Uh, yes, uh, I think the, I think, I think if, if, if ever there was a need uh, or uh, for, you know, I think um, to the people should think very carefully with regard to um, you know whether or not they actually should be bringing in specialists to to assist, uh, because obviously you know, we are commonly seeing stances 
where you know for example you know let me just talk about a, a particular line of activity we've been involved in of late which is dog breeding where HMRC has got data from uh, third party providers and insurance and is then based on the registrations that have been made is then going after a number of individuals claiming them to be dog breeding commercially rather than hobby breeding and some of the the, the approaches and some of the, 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 the views that have been taken by HMRC we've not had one case yet where we've, where we've agreed with HMRC's initial findings and in every case we've shown them to be hobby breeding so uh, there is a real concern for me that uh, that currently the pressure and the um, and the way in which HMRC is driving things uh, it just isn't correct. And now you yourself were in the revenue many many moons ago from the look of you uh, but many Thank moons you. ago Thank and you. <laughs> you mentioned that you you felt that the staff training perhaps wasn't as as good now the general experience do you, do you think that's the case? Um, well what I, I think what I would say is that the in in the past you had uh, I would say more typically you would have uh, staff who were working inquiry cases who actually wanted to work inquiry cases uh, and you and particularly with regard to direct tax uh, the vast majority of people working those cases were technically trained either through um, what was called the uh, the ITC the inspector training pro uh, course when I was there uh, or ultimately the, the the full training which is uh, the core professional training as well the actual program that some of the graduates uh, are on I'm not sure it's um, necessarily um, as comprehensive as, the, as what we did, but I think I think moreover there are a number of staff that that dare I say it have to be self-taught or you know they're given manuals to read and you know look uh, and and to take away and work and that you know they they haven't actually gone through a training program as you would have in the past. Yeah, I think that's quite often the case, isn't it? People blame the officers where it's not necessarily the officers, it's the training and experience that they have or, or yeah. haven't. haven't yeah, and, and dare I say it's the actual desire and the will and want to do that particular job and role. Now, we mentioned penalties throughout the webinar for, for quite, quite a time in the webinar. And it would appear HMRC's current penalty regime seems designed to raise more revenue and cash Yet they've stated the aim of penalties is to encourage the correct behaviour. How would you see that from your own viewpoint and experience? Uh, I would definitely say that clearly the... I can understand that stance by HMRC insofar as, for example, if you have a careless uh, inaccuracy that that could be... that if steps aren't taken to, to correct that, the... because... The whole purpose of any inquiry is for people to to learn lessons to move on uh, and to adapt to those and move on, and that's in particular for our clients. So, if we have a client who clearly there is uh, a lack of uh, robustness in their record keeping or in their own compliance, uh, I don't see anything wrong in, uh, and I and I think I think the legislation is good insofar as it does allow penalties to be suspended in those circumstances to allow somebody to correct them, correct their actions to ensure there's no recurring uh, events. Um, but uh, I, would, I, would, I would say that in my view, uh, the part of the reason for the penalties being introduced is 
is there are minimums for good reason. There are minimums because the certain officers were not applying penalties consistently across the board. You know, we in the past we've had Code Nine cases uh, where we've had a ten percent penalty were for deliberateness, whereas now uh, we wouldn't get that. I mean, the, you know, the minimum you'd be getting is there are say for a, 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 a prompted uh, case would be thirty five percent. So. Um, that the way I look at it is that the behavior behavioral penalties start so 15% prompted for carelessness, 35 for deliberate. That essentially is your penalty for what you've done in the past. And to minimize it going forward, you work with HMRC and you engage in the process to minimize the penalty. Uh, and what, what actions you do going forward minimize that. Okay, so you mentioned that the old system. One of the criticisms was it was uh, a lack of consistency. Yep. So, do you think that the new system is more consistent, or do you, do you think the new system is just as inconsistent? There's just higher penalties. What I would say is uh, the the findings re behaviour are inconsistent, but once you get into it, the penalty ranges are relatively more consistent because they're within ranges. So there are they are you know, they're not going to be as perverse, Kevin, as perhaps they used to be, but uh, that, so what you've got now is rather than rather than officers having a, a varied view on penalty ranges as they did in the past, you now have officers that are just varied in their view as to what is the underlying behaviour. Is you know one officer would say, well, that's carelessness. Another officer would say that's deliberate. Now you mentioned the um, proposition of suspended penalties. Can you just explain a little bit what you have to do to get a penalty suspended? And the inspectors asked for smart conditions to be suggested. Um, can you just explain what they are? Okay, fine. Um, the the first things first is making the the way you have a where you accept that there is a there is an error. You accept that that error can't be defended because somebody took reasonable care. Then clearly your your next port call is uh, carelessness. Clearly you want to. Uh, make sure that that doesn't escalate into perceived deliberateness because by doing so uh, you run the risk then you can't get the penalty suspended so it's only for careless inaccuracies so uh, one of the other things as well is making sure that to get it suspended that you basically say you look at the underlying action as to how that inaccuracy arose not the inaccuracy itself and therefore you set terms going forward within a two-year period maximum uh, whereby you can basically say there has to be uh, measurable terms in terms of uh, and there has to be a general term a specific and a general term general is just pay your tax on time file your return on time specific is the underlying action so it could be that they don't keep a log of their investment portfolio and the income that they're earning off it and therefore going forward as soon as they get a, a receipt of or notification of anything they'll write that down on their schedule print the document off and file it in a particular place so it's ready to go to to the inspector or to the accountant as a package one last thing there are a number of cases uh, and this is one of the beauties about suspension you can actually take the corrective action during the inquiry process so therefore by doing that when you get to the end, you're actually saying to the officer, we've actually already taken the steps and already corrected it. So therefore, we that, that way, you can potentially get a penalty suspended 
and released almost immediately. But be alive to, to HMRC officers not being appreciative that you can take corrective action during the inquiry process. I've seen some where they've said, well, on the basis you've already taken the, correction, correct, the corrective action, we can't suspend the penalty. Nonsense. Okay, so we have the various categories of penalties. The innocent error, having taken reasonable care, the failure to take reasonable care, and deliberate and deliberate and concealed. Um, now, quite often the inspector will introduce a questionnaire to the proceedings, even after the accountant or the client has explained their position and why they think a penalty is categorised in a certain category. Would you suggest completing those penalties? Or do you think the onus is on HMRC to say what a penalty is due? Uh, I've got, personally, I've got no necessary objection to uh, completing uh, the, the questionnaire. Um, I mean, I might, I might, if I, I might, so if I've already given explanations, I might, in, in the answers, refer them to a particular early uh, uh, correspondence. But, um, but primarily, a lot of, a lot of the time that that questionnaire's issued um, is to place on record uh, to allow the officer to make recommendations up to his line manager. So I think for I think for me, um, I would uh, particularly, uh, you know, if, we, if we're looking for the vast majority of any penalties should be uh, careless uh, and the vast majority of any uh, of careless ones should be suspendable. So on that basis, I've got no issue working with HMRC on that. Okay, so an officer has claimed, in terms of a failure to take a reasonable care, they've stated that a client has taken reasonable care in their view, but they think the accountant should have known better, so the accountant themselves haven't taken reasonable care, and as a result they want to charge the client a failure to take reasonable care penalty. Where do you sit on that sort of situation? Uh, well, I mean, the... Uh, that um, that on the on cases where we where we see HMRC, uh, you know, I mean, initially the person to to which you know you've got either two per two penalties, either the, the first one that is attributed it's either uh, attributable to the taxpayer himself, uh, and the second one is generally is the situation where it's attributable to another person. And another person who's done, who's done who is themselves being charged the penalty that third party that can only be charged in cases where it's deliberate in cases where the accountant uh, should have uh, known better then I mean I would be challenging that uh, robustly I mean that the the situation would be is um, obviously it depends upon what advice we're to, what we're talking about I mean if we're talking about where where we have instances where someone has gone to get specific advice uh, on an area that clearly they would need, need advice on, uh, you know, it could be uh, sort of a, an inheritance issue, capital gains issue, trust issue, uh, and that information has been provided by a specific advisor and then passed on to it, provided that advisor had been given all relevant facts by the taxpayer, even if that advice later proved to be negligent or, uh, or incorrect, you wouldn't be, HMRC wouldn't be able to attribute that onto the client. Uh, for following that advice, if there's if you've got a client who has uh, received advice that they themselves believe to be incorrect or know it would be incorrect, or they've gone to somebody and asked a question uh, and don't believe them to be an expert in that necessary field, then uh, there is potential uh, exposure for the client on that. 
So you mentioned there the concept of deliberate. Um, now, it's been claimed by a number of inspectors that uh, a deliberate penalty can be charged in circumstances where the client knew something wasn't right and did nothing about it. Uh, is, is that correct? Um, well, f firstly, um, I think the, I think with with, with those, it, it, it's you've got initially deliberate is where you've got knowledge at the time. So at the time, for example, if you're delivering a tax return, if you know it's wrong, you might not necessarily know uh, to the extent to which the underlying tax uh, would be at risk as a result of that. But if you know something's wrong within a tax return and you deliver that, then that's deliberate. If you later come to f learn of an inaccuracy and you're able to correct that but then deliberately decide not to do so then again there's a clear conscious decision uh, with knowledge uh, that you've that you've uh, failed to, to do something so for that it could be it could be uh, deliberate or likely to be deliberate the only thing that there would have to be a reasonable or there was some form of explanation to to explain why you didn't come forward on that you mentioned in your webinar also about special circumstances uh, and special reduction that should be considered uh, regarding human rights for individual uh, clients and taxpayers. So what sort of circumstances, by way of example, would you suggest are considered? Uh, I have to say uh, use of special reduction by HMRC is as rare as hen's teeth. Um, I'm, I struggle to uh, come across you know, I've got I've got five digits on one hand, and I, I wouldn't need any more, Kevin, to count the circumstances in which I've come across it being used. And then commonly, uh, you see cases where they haven't even considered it, and it's the, it's the last part of the process. Because what what HMRC is supposed to do is effectively stand back and say, is this is this right? Is the quantum is the amount being charged right? Uh, and you could have an instance where the actual underlying error. Is so is is quite minute, but the 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 figures involved are quite huge. And and you know I, I did give one example during the webinar of an individual who uh, hadn't previously filed VAT returns because their uh, their business was was exempt insofar as it was involved in children's clothing. But the first VAT return they ever filed was in respect to the sale of a commercial building, which would, that was chargeable. And on that, they got the, the timing of the disposal wrong. And HMRC uh, pursued a penalty in that. Well, because of the quantum involved, the, the sale proceeds, the VAT and the, that was due and the mistake was huge. And as a result of that, the one error led to a huge amount being, uh, being sort of chargeable. And on something like that, I would say that that a case like that is worthy of, of looking at to see is this is this right is this fair? So you mentioned also about discovery inquiries in your webinar. And can you just clarify for our listeners exactly what constitutes a discovery? Uh, right, it, it's one where um, so essentially the first the first thing that you have is you, you file a tax return and HMRC's got 12 months from the date of filing or 31st of Jan to to make an inquiry into that return and and once they once that's not happened then there is supposed to that's supposed to dare I say it be a settled position i.e. HMRC had a right to inquire and elected not to do so now 
what we could have is we could have a situation where, for example, and we see we see this quite commonly, uh, tax returns are being filed by individuals. But let's just say an individual has got a, um, a property portfolio of which they're receiving rental income but not declaring it on their tax return. Well, HMRC learns of this through their computer selection, through the fact that HMRC's got the, uh, the, the land registry details, and then identifies uh, that this individual had, should be declaring uh, property pages on the return and hasn't done so. Well, clearly, that information has, uh, wasn't made available in the tax return uh, and has only been made available subsequent uh, after the inquiry window. That, potentially, is a valid discovery. But we see common instances, and as I highlighted in the webinar, um, your good selves here at PFP uh, refer to the discovery case of uh, TOOF, where in that various entries were contained in the additional information white space box uh, and therefore were made available. And the very issue that HMRC challenged outside the inquiry window was on those issues. Uh, and uh, the case ended up going to tribunal and it was found that HMRC hadn't made a discovery because they already had the information during the inquiry window. Okay, leading on from discovery then, we had a number of queries in the webinar concerning HMRC disclosing what information they have or what, you know, they hold on the taxpayer. Um, in terms of a discovery, of course, they should be giving the information up front. But what about general inquiries? Um, well, the vast majority, um, well over 90%, are, are pre-selected risk-identified cases. They're cases where HMRC's uh, software has detected uh, risks that warrant investigation. Some of those, uh, and there's two forms, there's, there's one which is a mandatory inquiry, where, where it will be allocated to a case officer and irrespective of what the case officer thinks about those risks, they have to conduct an inquiry. There will be others which will be the HMRC where the inspector is a pre-selected uh, risk review and the investigator has looked at it himself and, and, and reached a conscious decision as to whether or not they actually want to take that case up. They have the right to say no but they've decided to take it up. So clearly on both instances, there are risks that are identified by HMRC as, uh, and they believe that there are possible inaccuracies within the return, hence leading them to open it. Um, what would we do at Buzzacott uh, in that we would, uh, our first line of communication would be having not necessarily a face-to-face -face meeting but a telephone meeting with the officer and we'd be getting the officer to share those risks with us primarily because we now operate under a basis upon which the the whole uh, process of uh, uh, particularly inquiries is that it, the onus is on the, the, the taxpayer to make a full and frank disclosure and to work within the process to mitigate their penalty and get it down. So therefore, it makes good sense for HMRC officers to share what their, what their concerns are. I mean, ultimately, uh, one can serve a data protection notice on HMRC uh, for various uh, items of information that HMRC can only withhold if it, if it feels it would, uh, by, by providing it, it would interfere with the... Uh, the collection and administration of, of, of tax. But generally speaking, I would say in, in the, the vast, vast majority of instances, HMRC does share that information with us. Okay, thank you. 
one of the last questions I want to ask is you mentioned that you felt unrepresented taxpayers in effect get a worse deal when, de when dealing with HMRC Direct. Why do you think that is? Primarily because um, the, the HMRC uh, officer knows that he's dealing with... Um, well, actually, let's rewind. What I would say is on the vast majority of unrepresented cases that, that come to us, the ones that we, dare I say it, turn around from a position of sometimes deliberate to actually, you know, and then the dog breeding is one, where we've had cases come to us where where somebody's been going along uh, believing that, that, that sort of, you know, cooperating with HMRC, sending them information that, you know, the personal bank statements, uh, emails, various things that you know, literally uh, being o overly helpful to HMRC, uh, and HMRC then suddenly launches an attack on deliberate and wants penalties, etc., etc. At which point they come to us, and we're and we turn that back into it being exactly what it is, hobby breeding. So I think some of the some of the cases I see are horrific in terms of where unrepresented taxpayers have been uh, treated um, with a view of um, that because they don't know any better uh, and then clearly you've got you've got an expert on one side which is the HMRC officer dealing with somebody who isn't an expert and specialist i.e. The, the unrepresented taxpayer and we have had instances where the unrepresented taxpayer has said to the HMRC officer should I get specialist help and they've been told well only if you've done something seriously wrong so uh, and, and we have had HMRC officers say to us that they're put under pressure uh, internally to pursue uh, a harder line of, uh, of events with uh, unrepresented because they don't know better. So, um, you know, don't get me wrong, we get cases where represented taxpayers are, uh, where there, there are findings of HMRC that, that we don't agree with and robustly defend, but I think it's the unrepresented ones where you look at them and you just think to yourself, there is no way that that that, that, that can be a right decision that is made on that. Okay, thank you. Well, my last question is, you mentioned in the webinar about the uh, revenue super offices. Um, what makes you think they're going to be so super, and if so, at what? Uh, well, they're super in terms of size uh, and uh, in terms of the fact that, that obviously, you know, I, uh, I, I remember... Uh, you know, uh, HMRC or Inland Revenue having, you know, I, I remember Worthing, for example, where I come from, uh, they, they had five off, five tax offices down there. Uh, oh, no, sorry, Brighton had five. I think Worthing had three. Littlehampton had one. Bogner had one. All along the South Coast, Hastings, Eastbourne. Uh, now, uh, they're all been shut, or they have been shut, and they're all been effectively moved to Croydon. Uh, so you've got a Croydon super office, and you've got uh, a... Um, a, a sort of a Stratford super super office. I don't necessarily believe that that it means that they're super in terms of the, the customer service or what you or the the customer because this is a new phrase the customer experience that one is going to receive uh, that the the feedback on that would be super but um, it's just super in terms of. Um, whether or not um, the just the size and uh, and the logistics, but you know the vast majority of those centres are, are are compliance led. That's lastly before before we call it to a close. You mentioned FRB in your webinar. What were you referring to? Uh, correct. Uh, it's um, it, it's future revenue benefit, and it's something that uh, that sometimes 
on certain instances, we've we've wondered why H1C is taking a particular view because um, it doesn't necessarily lead or or uh, we you know we can't sort of see sort of why they're being so dogged on something, particularly because it doesn't necessarily expose the client so much. But essentially what it is, is HMC doesn't just look at their adjustments for the year, the tax year itself. Part of their statistical recording is also looking at what future revenue benefit that has been achieved from the outcome of the case. So essentially, but for the intervention or the investigation, what would have, what would have been the loss to HMRC going forward and in some of that quite clearly it calls for hypothetical readings and calculations being provided by the revenue officer which ultimately then leads to HMRC claiming an increase in its yield and its statistical takings which then in turn ultimately leads to HMRC's tax gap calculations. And it all, a lot of it, this stems from this phraseology, FRB. So it's just not necessarily, be alive to the fact, it's not just necessarily the, the check that the taxpayer is writing there and then. HMRC will also claim a, uh, an adjustment for the, the years going forward. Okay, thank you very much. Well, that concludes our webinar um, on HMRC's latest compliance tactics. It's one of a number of webinars produced uh, by PFP with selected guests. Um, Mark Taylor, of course, today has joined us, who's partner and head of tax investigations and dispute resolution at Buzzercuts. And I'm sure if you have any um, use of his services, he'd be pleased to hear from you. I would. Um, my name is Kevin Igo, director of PFP, the leading fee protection provider. If anybody would like details of any of our products or services, please contact us. Meanwhile, we hope to speak to you again soon. Uh, right. Thank you, Kevin.